now fail to remember that in the Republican cause there is a higher aim than that of mere office. I have not allowed myself to forget that the abolition of the slave trade by Great Britain was agitated a hundred years before it was finally final success, that the measure had its opening fire-eating opponents, its stealthy don't-care opponents, its dollar-and-cents opponents, its inferior race opponents, its Negro equality opponents, and its goal and its religion and good order opponents, that all these opponents got offices and their adversaries got none. But I also remembered that, they, that though they blazed like tallow candles for a century, at last they flickered in a socket, died out, stank in the dark for a brief season, and were remembered no more, even by the smell. Schoolboys know that Wilberforce and Greenfield Sharp helped that cause forward. But who can now name a single man who labored to retard it? Remembering these things, I cannot but regard it as possible that the higher op- object of this contest may not be completely attained within the nat- term of my natural life. So welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll be looking at some more of the writings of Abraham Lincoln. Specifically, we'll be looking at the stuff he wrote and the speeches he gave from 1855 until he really begins the Senate campaign in the summer of 1858. Um, So the most notable speech he gave in this time period would be the House Divided speech, which we'll talk about. It's not a very long speech. Um, and its its thesis is very clear, so we won't have to say a lot about it. But it is probably the most notable um, example of his oratory during that time. But the quote I gave at the beginning I found interesting because it, it wasn't something he published. It was um, a fragment, called, it's just titled in this anthology, A Fragment on the Struggle Against Slavery. Again, just a little, some notes he wrote down. He wrote it in the summer of 1858, while, you know, when that Senate campaign began. And it's a document about that really shows he's thinking long term about the the importance of what the Republican Party is by that point a Republican Party member of course and what they're trying to do and he's thinking long term and it's also he's he's right and wrong right uh, he didn't know that slavery would be dead in America in less than a decade um, he was thinking maybe a century it'll take to do that, right? At this time, he still, during that Senate campaign, he repeatedly said, I have no desire to interfere with slavery where it is. Um, whether that's true or not is something we can think about. I, you know, it's, it's a complicated question. Historians have grappled with it for a very long time. And as we look at the documents of, about, you know, during the war, we can think about what led Lincoln to abolition just five years after this, well, Emancipation Proclamation, just five years after that was written. Um, but at the same time, he, his, he did die before, uh, or roughly, you know, he barely outlived the end of slavery. Um, I, th- I actually don't think the 13th Amendment was fully ratified until after he died. So in a sense, it's true. Slavery was not abolished in his, in his lifetime. So this is going to be our last episode. We're going to be dealing with multiple years. Uh, my plan going forward is after this one, we're going to have three episodes about the Senate campaign. Basically, the Lincoln-Douglas debates will do over three episodes. We'll do one and two in the first episode, three and four in the second, and then five, six, seven 
in the third and final episode, and I'll finish up the first volume. The second volume, which deals really with the president, presidential campaign, well, 19, 1859, the presidential campaign, and then the war, we'll do that over six episodes, basically one year um, per, per episode. Um, 65 will be very short. Obviously, I think you just essentially have the second inaugural and a few other sort of documents, but it's... It's, um, it'll give us a chance to, to have some time to kind of think about the series as a whole. So that, that's the plan going forward, and, and we'll just do one year per, per episode. So um, what's the major theme of this? Well, it's, it's really his, his rise to, you know, seek his, his return to politics, the rise of the Republican Party, Lincoln's joining of the Republican Party, and the, the kind of the politics around that, and, and really his, his return to um, political life. He had tried. He actually tried in 1855 to get back into political life. He, he wanted to be nominated um, for the Senate um, by the, um, I guess it would have been by the Whig Party still at that point. He hasn't joined the Republican Party until 1856. Um, but, you know, he ends up having to support uh, another candidate, basically, to, to put his weight behind him. Um, so once again, you know, kind of Stephen Douglas being the uh, being kind of his antagonist through much of this period of his life. Oh, by the way, in the last episode, I said you know he kept referring to a guy, Judge Douglas, and I I kind of grokked that 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 was Stephen Douglas, but I, you know I'm like he was a senator. Why does he call him Senator Douglas? But after reading this, uh, the quite a few of the uh, speeches in the Lincoln Douglas debates, he continues that practice. So it was Stephen Douglas. He was referring to calling him a judge. From a previous office he held, I suppose, um, and you know, so yeah, that, that was who he was responding to there. So this idea of him as an antagonist is kind of interesting throughout. There's of course another Illinois politician, the senator from Illinois, is during Illinois at this time. Well, I guess uh, he no. So in '55, he's not. It wouldn't have been against um, Douglas. It would have been the other senator from um, the other Senate seat would have been open in the 1856 election. And that would have been Lyndon Trumbull, um, the Republican. So he served from March 1855 until until March 1873. Um, so, so so it was Douglas and well, first it was James Shield. James Shield was the senator from Illinois until 1855, a Democrat, and then the Republican gets the seat that 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 year, uh, 1856. The Republicans take uh, the presidential uh, election in, in Illinois too, so it's it's kind of a the party the the political loyalties of both senators uh, switch in Illinois and Illinois and by 1861. So, anyways, who cares about that electoral history really? Uh, we're here to to think about Lincoln's career. Um, so, 1855, Lincoln, you know, tries he makes a bid to be the candidate. And remember, in these days, the Senate was chosen by the the, the legislature. Um, but he tried to get in on that, but he ends up supporting an anti-Nebraska um, candidate. Uh, well, I mean, anti-Nebraska, Kansas-Nebraska law uh, bill candidate uh, Trumbull. So he's, he eventually wins. He's making a lot of money as a lawyer in his years, too. Um, so he's returning to politics at a time. He's, he's a fairly successful lawyer. He's making about 5,000 years as a, as a lawyer. Now he gives his, his logic to basically stepping aside uh, to uh, to allow uh, the 
this guy Trumbull to win in in the Senate Senate election. You know, he seems to be regretful about it, but he writes about this in a letter to a guy named William Henderson. He says, the election is over, the session is ended, and I'm not senator. I have to content myself with the honor of having been the first choice of a large majority of the 51 members who finally made the election. My larger number of friends had to surrender to crumble smaller numbers in order to prevent the election of Madison, which would have been a Douglas victory. I started with 44 votes and Trumbull with five. It was rather hard for the 44 to have to surrender to the five, and a far less good-humored man than I perhaps would not have consented to it, and I would not have, and that would not have been done without my consent. I could not, however, let the whole political result go to ruin on a point of merely personal to myself. So there, there he just kind of gets very clearly his logic that it was um, basically to keep the Democrats from, from, from taking the seat. But interestingly, this was a three-way race, right? The Republican got five votes, uh, the Whig Lincoln got 44, and then uh, this Madison, this, this Democrat, you know, had, a, had I guess, somewhere somewhat less than four, something between 44 and 49. I'm not sure how many votes he would have had. But it was enough, him putting his weight behind the Republican to, to give them the, uh, the vote. He says a little bit more about this in a follow-up letter to a guy named Owen Lovejoy, where he really talks about the, the need to sort of have the Whig and the Republicans fused, to have a kind of a fusion ticket or a fusion approach of, of the anti-Kansas anti Nebraska people. He writes, I have no objection to fuse with anybody provided I can fuse on grounds which I think is right. And I believe the opponents of slavery extension could now do this if it were not this Kansas-Nebraskaism. In many speeches last summer, I advised those who did, did me the honor of hearing to stand with anybody who stands right. I'm quite willing to follow my own advice. End quote. So he gives the same logic here that, you know, the fight, the fight against the Kansas-Nebraska Act is the more important um, political logic. Now, eventually, shortly after this, he just joins the Republican Party and the Whig Party in, in Illinois dies out anyway. So this is a moot issue within, within a year, but at the time, there's still kind of three parties at work there. Now, one more document from 55 that we can look at. It's, it's a rather long letter, long by Lincoln standards, four pages, um, to Joshua Speed, his good friend. I remember Joshua Speed, they were in business together for a while in, when he was younger, before he got into politics, you know, really his, essentially his best friend. Um, and he's a slave owner um, from, from Kentucky. And he writes a, a very, I think, systematic argument, discussion with his friend about slavery and a slavery's future in America. And, you know, he kind of lays out his, his positions, political positions, but he's, he's doing it to a friend. So I think it's a, a notable letter. And of course, what Lincoln's concern is about the expansion of slavery, especially combined with Dred Scott, the Dred Scott decision, is that this essentially makes slavery a national institution or potentially a national institution. So he, at this point, is he wants to restore the Missouri Compromise line and ensure that the, the rest of Louisiana Purchase um, north of that line would, would remain free um, by essentially, uh, you know, federal law. Um, he starts, though, in his letter to Joshua Speed with, a, with the moral argument, and he says, uh, his, his moral outrage at slavery overall, he says, I confess I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and caught and carried back to their strips and unrelated toils, but, but, but I bite my lip and keep quiet. In 1841, you and I 
together, had together a tedious low water trip on a steamboat from Louisville to St. Louis. You may remember as well as I do that from Louisville to the mouth of the Ohio, there they were on board tens or dozens of slaves shackled together with irons. End quote. He's referring to something I think he, he wrote about in another letter to someone else about this trip. It, it seemed to have a, a very meaningful, um, um, it was a very meaningful moment for him. Um, then he talks about the actual detailed policy of, of opposing the extension of slavery. And he, he's fairly upfront about how he thinks there's a lot of hypocrisy among the, the pro, the, the, the su Southern voters anyways, or the pro-slavery voters, I shouldn't say Southern, the pro-slavery voters on Kansas. First, he says, you know, if push comes to shove and Kansas votes to be a slave state, which of course is the debate going on at that time in Kansas with the settlers coming in pro-slavery and free soil settlers coming in and, and voting. He says, I'll have to support that because to not would be to basically destroy the union and, and, and you know, that he doesn't want. Um, but he still, as the House Divided speech makes clear, he doesn't think this is a sustainable situation for long, especially after Dred Scott in, in Kansas, Nebraska. Um, but he says the problem is that the, the, nothing is fair. There's no way to really judge whether the election is, is fair in Kansas, which is, is basically true, right? The, the, the Lecompton Constitution, we now know, historians now know, was a fraudulent constitution, you know, the electing, creating, a, making Kansas a slave state. It was done through machinations and vote suppression and, and all kinds of other bad, you know, bad stuff. Um, but he says, you know, if it's a fair election, but we, it's not. So that's, you know, he, he basically thinks that Kansas, if voting democratically, would choose to be a, a free state. And then he turns it around on the slave, pro-slavery voters saying, you talk as if you'll rejoice if Kansas votes itself to be a free state, but you still vote for it to be a slave state. So you don't really think that stopping the extension of slavery into Kansas is a is a good thing. You vote as if it's a good thing that slavery is extended, right? So, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, if you just take on any political issue, someone who says, you know, I would support, you know, I, I think it'd be great if you know, we had Medicare for all or higher taxes on the rich or something, but when they finally vote, they vote, you know, for candidates who oppose those things, right? You know, self-interest trumps uh, the moral argument. So um, that's it. And he talks a little bit about the other parties out there, you know, you know, and and a little bit about his political life. But it's a really good letter. It's it's dated August twenty fourth, eighteen fifty five, and it, you really see him forming the arguments that are going to be in the House Divided speech or there in the Lincoln Douglas debates, um, kind of working them out with his friend. Um, so, anyways, that's that's really the notable documents in this collection from eighteen fifty five. Um, moving on to eighteen fifty six. Um, well, he's, he's, this is the year he shifts his political uh, loyalties to the Republican Party. He thinks about maybe uh, a new free soil party, you know, because the Whig Party is collapsing in Illinois. And eventually he gives up on that idea and just joins the Republican Party, seeing them as essentially the, the you know, the, the party that's going to represent that free soil um, voice. 
He almost, though, after joining, he almost gets uh, voted as the vice president or almost gets chosen as the vice presidential candidate for Fremont. Fremont was Republican candidate in the election of 1856, the first time the Republicans run um, competitively in statewide elections, where there's not a weak candidate who's going to kind of split that vote. Um, and that's the main event of 1856 is the, is, is the election or the the election for Fremont, the, the, the Republican campaign for Fremont to be elected president. Okay, he's got an a article. I don't know if this was published or not. It's July 1856. I think it's, it's again, like his, his notes to himself, um, some jottings he, he wrote down on a, on a political issue or on a, on a moral issue, which he, he did from time to time. And they're, they're some of the most interesting documents in, the, in this whole collection, I think. This one's on sectionalism, right? And the, the thesis of this essay... It's again, it's you know, long by Lincoln standards. It's, this one's like five pages. He, it, the argument here is, is that yes, there's sectionalism and yes, there's a sectional divide growing. And the question is, 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 is why? And he comes down to it that really the why of, of sectionalism in America at that time is pecuniary interest of, of slaveholding Southerners. That's what it comes down to. And that's the reason for it. It's not, it's not ultimately a moral, or a question of principle. He thinks the, that's on his side, that's on the side of free soil. And we've talked about that argument before, right? Essentially, you know, Thomas Jefferson helped write a law, which, you know, before the Constitution was even written, that, that banned slavery in territory. So this idea that there was some new trend to manage the existence or non-existence of slavery in the territories, it wasn't a new thing, right? And there's all this precedent of, of managing the existence of slavery in the territories, saying it can be here, not here. Um, that, that's kind of the, on principle, he thinks it's, it's a kind of an open shut case. What really with the sectional divide is coming out of this effort to push the pecuniary, the financial interests of the South. <clears throat> he writes, um, it is because in that question, the people of the South have immediate, palpable, and immensely great pecuniary interest, while the people of the North, it is merely an abstract question of moral right, with only slight and remote pecuniary interest added. The slaves of the South, at a moderate estimate, are worth a thousand millions of dollars. Let it be permanently settled that this property may extend to new territory without restraint, and it greatly enhances and perhaps quite doubles its value at once. This immense palpable pecuniary interest on the question of extending slavery unites the Southern people as one man. But it cannot be demonstrated that the North will gain a dollar by restricting it, right? And, you know, I don't know if that's true, you know, I, you know, who's the North, who's the South, right? I think even with the South, it's a small class of people who benefit. Most Southerners didn't own slaves. I think 90% didn't own slaves. And much of that other 10% didn't own many slaves, right? The, the, the planter class who owned a lot of slaves, you know, more than 100, or even I think more than 20, was a very small percentage. One or two, maybe. I don't know. I, I used to know, but I, I forgot exactly how many it is. But it's, it was really a class system in the South. Slaveholding just exacerbated class, class tensions in all kinds of complicated ways. Uh, but, you know, that value is going to them. The, that it unites the South entirely, I'm not sure. I mean, I think he's not really, have, doesn't have a deep awareness of, of the complexity of class in the South overall. Uh, and, and maybe it's just, he's trying to understand why there's, why there's political sectionalism, right? I, I think he maybe doesn't quite articulate here just how much the planter class dominated Southern politics. You know, he, I think he knows that, but he's not, it's not in this, this article.
Um, and that's what it comes down to for him. He thinks sectionalism is merely an extension of, of, of profit, right? And I think he's, he's right here, right? If, if you have, you know, land opened up in the West to slavery, right? That's going to, a lot of settlers are going to go there. They're going to want slaves. The value of slaves will go up, right? And then as those slaves reproduce and the numbers grow, we talked about that in the last episode too, how the expansion of slavery doesn't mean slavery, slaves just move from one place to another. It increases the overall population of enslaved men and women. And that, of course, creates value, right? Because um, that's, what, that's what capital was, land and slaves in the Old South, right? That's virtually all the capital in the, in the South was in slaves and land. All right, moving on. In December 1856, he writes a little note on Stephen Douglas, and, and it's, it's, a good, it's a nice little paragraph he writes, uh, where he thinks about the history, and he thinks about the significance of, of Douglas's rise and his, his conflict with him, and then the, he comes to finally the moral uh, tragedy of, of, we think, Stephen Douglas's career. I'll read the whole thing. 22 years ago, Stephen Douglas and I first became acquainted. We were both young men. He was a trifle younger than I. Even then, we were both ambitious. I, perhaps quite as much as so as he. With me, the race of ambition had been a failure, a flat failure. With him, it's been one of splendid success. His name fills the nation and is not unknown even in foreign lands. I affect no contempt for the high eminence he has reached. So reached that the oppressed of my species might have shared with me in that elevation. I would rather stand on that eminence than wear the richest crown than ever pressed a monarch's brow. Quote. So he's, you know, he's saying he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not jealous of that eminence. It's just the tragedy is his his rise has meant, you know, the expansion of slavery, right? The the, the oppressed of, of my species, um, and the, you know, he he actually is saying here that had he rose, it would have been better for the American slaves, right? That's a bit maybe bold, but um, you know, who who knows what happened? I mean, he certainly. Is more significant was more significant as president than senator. So, the, you know, that's the the loss in, in fifty eight probably was significant. He probably never would have been chosen as the candidate. I don't know. I'd have to you know we'll just think about the the politics the politicking that led to the cho cho choice of, of Lincoln. You know, obviously him being in the Senate wouldn't have precluded him from being the, the candidate. Douglas was a senator and he ran the same year, eighteen sixty. All right, that's all for 1856. Uh, 1857, well, more lawyering. Um, Lincoln's still lawyering. He tried to get in the Senate and he failed. So, you know, he's, he's involved in Republican Party politics, but he's mostly lawyering. He's got various criminal and civil cases. Um, he also gives some... Um, now, the, the major political issue he's dealing with, of course, Fremont loses, right? The Republicans lose the 1856 election. You know, Lincoln had stumped for, for Fremont. There's not like a political campaign for him to be political with. So 1857 was more of a year that seemed from the timeline we have here, mostly focused on his lawyering. Um, one of these important cases, though, was, and I'll just read it from the chronology. In September, defends Rock Island Railroad in the F.E. Afton case involving steamboat destroyed by fire after striking the first major railroad bridge across the Mississippi River. Trial ends when jury deadlocks 9-3 in railroad's favor, a significant setback to riverboat interests in their effort to block railroad expansion. It seems interesting. I, I want to know more about this case because the damage to the steamboat was because of the bridge, right? So railroads, of course, need these bridges across rivers or it's not going to work. Um, but you can imagine the big enemy of this was the steamboats 
because they, they it was not in their interest for railroads to be successful, obviously. But this the damage done to this steamboat became you know it became a a civil matter that they could sue in court. And had they succeeded, it would have been a setback to the railroads, but it wasn't. And so this is probably one of many cases that kind of litigated this kind of thing, but kind of opened the door to the dominance of railroads in the mid, mid and later 19th century and, and the decline of these other um, transportation um, methods of transportation, other, other types of internal improvements. Um, anyways, uh, but the major thing involving the sectional crisis in 1857 is the Dred Scott decision. And um, let's let's review that quickly. The Dred Scott decision was a, a, a Supreme Court case, you know, it went through the courts, eventually the Supreme Court, about a, a man, an enslaved man who was brought to Wisconsin and he lived there for a while with his master. Uh, and then he, he basically sued saying, I'm free. You know, once I was brought into a free state, you know, slavery is illegal, so I couldn't have been a slave, and so I must be free, right? This is similar to what happened to Sally Hemings in Paris, right? When Jefferson brought Sally, you know, Hemings to Paris, he had to pay her wages because she couldn't be a slave, right? And she would have been right. She would have had a legal argument. If she would have sued Jefferson, she probably could have won, you know, to not go back with him as a slave. She could have been a free woman in, in Paris, presumably. We don't know, I don't know all the details of that. And we really don't know if there's some negotiation or, or what led Sally, you know, to not, Sally Hemings not to resist her captivity in that way. But, you know, this was an issue in, in some kind of, in, in British law too, I think, involving uh, the slavery in the colonies and places where there wasn't legal. Um, I have those documents somewhere. Uh, but the you know the end of slavery and the slave trade in the Atlantic world overall, you know it comes up a lot, right? Actually, because you have a, a people traveling a lot and people bringing their slaves with them into places where there's there's legal freedom for for all people. So what you know this the the tragedy of the Dred Scott decision, of course, was first the courts say black people really can't sue in court anyway; they don't have the rights of citizens. Um, and basically, that just throws out the case altogether. But they also do clarify that, yes, property rights over slaves, you know, are essentially nationalized or across the nation, right? And this, this is, this is joined to the anti-Kansas-Nebraska movement because together, it basically does make slavery a national institution, right? First, um, you know, opening up, destroying the Missouri Compromise, essentially saying the federal government doesn't have that right. It's all up to the settlers to decide for themselves if there's going to be slavery or not. And, you know, essentially popular sovereignty, squatter sovereignty, that was the word Lincoln often used for it, says essentially that the federal government can't stop settlers from bringing slaves with them into territories, right? It's something that's going to be worked out later in the in the convention when they put together a constitution. Uh, so that makes it come more national, right? Potentially all the way up to the Canadian border. But the Dred Scott decision says in the end of the day, popular sovereignty doesn't even matter, right? It's not even about popular sovereignty because you, as long as you bought your slave, presumably in a, in a free state or in a slave state, you could bring him anywhere, right? And, and he wouldn't have a claim to freedom. So that's the significance of the Dred Scott decision um, 
in, in the sectional debate is it, it really does potentially make slavery a national institution. Um, and that's, of course, what Lincoln gives a speech on this in Springfield, right? a speech on the, uh, in his response to the Dred Scott decision. And it's quite an important speech. And he says quite a lot here. He, he starts actually comparing this to Utah and, and the issue of polygamy in Utah, right? which was a, you know, if the people of Utah pass a state constitution which allows polygamy, should this be allowed? Is this, is this permissible under, under, under the United States, right? And he challenges Stephen Douglas again directly on this. He says, he wrote, there's nothing in the United States Constitution or law against polygamy. And why is it not a part of the judge's sacred right to self-government for these people to have it or rather to keep it if they choose? This question, so far as I know, the judge never answers. It might involve the democracy to answer them either way. And they go unanswered. As to Kansas, the substance of the judge's speech on Kansas is an effort to put the free state men in the wrong for not voting at the election of delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Um, so that's, it's a really interesting comparison, right? Because that was another kind of debate about, about can a state choose to adopt polygamy? Is, is that a state right? Uh, he talks a, a, quite a lot about the growing lawlessness in Kansas and the lawlessness in the Constitutional Convention and the, the, the lead up to the Lecompton Constitution. Essentially, there's no reason to believe that can, the, the elections of Kansas are, are fair. Um, he goes on and he also talks about just the politics behind Supreme Court decisions. And this is something that, that Douglas is going to pick on Lincoln quite a lot for in the Lincoln-Douglas debates and in the, that Senate campaign is, you know, Lincoln is essentially saying the Supreme Court is merely a political entity. Uh, if, of course it is, and it always has been. It's never been a, a fair a non-political arbiter of, of decisions. It's always you know, represented class interests or, or sectional interests or it's always been about you know, politics and power, right? And, and it always will be. Um, I do think overall the Supreme Court has stood in the way of, of progress and that's, that's, it's tended to be politically conservative. Not always, but for most of American history, it's, it's tended towards conservatism or other reactionary interests. Now, certainly the Dred Scott decision wasn't conservative, but it was representing class interests of, of a small minority of Americans who, who owned a lot of slaves. Um, so he talks about the politicization of the Supreme Court. You know, Americans are always complaining about this, but it's always been the case. Um, the decision he, he, he details was not based on history or on law, legal precedents. It was merely a, a political statement. Um, and then he deals with the criticism of the Republicans for advocating social amalgamation of the races. And what's interesting about this is, is you know, if we want to get a kind of Lincoln's racial views. At this time, Lincoln was a colonizationist. He didn't think colonization was possible, really, but he kind of protected himself. He said, you know, if slavery were to end, you know, there should be some process of, of colonization. He's not a social egalitarian, certainly not an advocate of, of amalgamation of the races in America, right? But that was a common criticism. Douglas is constantly going to call the Republican Party the Black Republicans as, a, as kind of a criticism basically saying that they're advocating um, Negro equality and, and social amalgamation, right? But actually Lincoln turns this around and says, look, it's actually the Democrats in supporting things like the Dred Scott decision that are the true advocates of, of social amalgamation because that's the end result of it is basically slavery is going to be everywhere. And, and it's actually in the South where you have close relationship between the races, right? It's where you had like urban segregation 
we're in like northern cities not the south in the south blacks and whites work together lived together they had sex together masters you know raped their slaves constantly so there was all these biracial children coming out of slavery so social amalgamation was was truer in the south than than in the north of any free black communities so I think Lincoln's right on this point historically, right? He, he said in the speech, um, a few free colored persons may get into the free states in any event, but their numbers are too insignificant to about to much in the way of mixing in blood. In 1850, there were in the free states 56,649 mulattoes, but for the most part, they were not born there. They came from the slave states, ready made up. In the same year, the slave states had 348,874 mulattoes, all of home production. The proportion of free mulattoes to free blacks, the only colored class in the free states, is much greater than in the slave than in the free states. It was worthy to note too that among the free states, which which have the colored men the nearest equal equal to whites, have proportionally the fewest mulattoes or the least amalgamation. End quote. So something we always kind of know, but we don't think about, is that social uh, relations between blacks and whites were closer. In, you know, on a plantation, right? You had wage laborers coming in, working alongside slaves. Poor whites and, and slaves had social interconnections. There's a wonderful book about this. I forget the name of it, though. Uh, written probably about 15 years ago, but a really great one that goes back to the colonial period and, and looks at the relations between um, poor whites and slaves in, like, Georgia, I think it is. And, and of course, the violence, uh, sexual violence against enslaved women, which went on throughout the whole entire history of slavery. So anyways, that's that. And then we do have the, this, the, the Rock Island Bridge case, if you're interested in his lawyering arguments. They're there too, but um, it's here in this collection. That was September 1857, but I, you know, I don't really know enough about the law to be too interested in this particular document. I'm interested in the sectional um, crisis and, and Lincoln's um, you know, role in that. Um, one last interesting document, though, from 1857 is the draft of the House Divided Speech. Um, now, I have to—I read both the House Divided Speech and this speech, and one of the big differences, thematically, they're kind of the same, but the difference is he leads with the House Divided in the speech he finally gave. Here, it's buried, you know, about probably I would say 15 minutes into the speech. Towards the end, he gets to the that quote from the Bible, right? The House Divided against itself can't stand is from the Bible. But so I, I think the, the, the actual speech he gave is improvement over the, the draft. He wrote that in November 57. The House Divided speech was, when, when did he give that? That was June. So almost a year um, af, uh, after he kind of first wrote out this draft, he, he gave the, the House Divided speech. So he was thinking about this a long time. He had a lot of time to work on that speech. But leading with it, makes it a much more powerful speech, right? Because, you know, you know, sometimes the details get lost. Like, who can say what's in the House Divided speech except a House Divided against itself cannot stand, right? That's, not many people probably can say much about the speech beyond that. So anyways, that's all 1857. So 1858, um, we're getting to it. We're, we're getting to the Senate run. Um, so it's in 1858 that... And we're only going to look at the documents from the first half until the Lincoln-Douglas debates begin. Uh, he gets the endorsement for the Senate seat by the Republican Party. He gives his famous House Divided speech, and he begins campaigning for the Senate. And that's, that's going to dominate 
1858. So for this episode and for the next three, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in 1858 in the midst of this Senate um, run. So obviously, uh, the House Divided Speech makes the case that uh, the long-term outlook for the United States is some resolution to the sectional crisis that will be either the abolition of slavery and the end of slavery everywhere, or perhaps more likely, the spread of slavery everywhere. I mean, that's one way of reading this is, well, inevitably, the slavery will be ended, right? The free states will win out. And that's certainly probably Lincoln's hope here. Um, but I think the real theme, the way I read it, and the bigger concern of this speech is that slavery is going to spread everywhere, right? Com the, the shenanigans in Kansas, the Kansas-Nebraska Act itself, um, and the Dred Scott decision together make a situation where there's really no legal limit on slavery anywhere. A state can't essentially say, we want to be a free state, right? And so it's not, I don't think he's quite saying that, like, the, think of the Missouri Compromise time, the period from 1820 to 1830, right? I don't know if he's saying that is the same situation as they're in now, right? Certainly you had a house divided, you had free states and slave states, you know? But a lot of few northern states were, were, were still in, had slavery until the 1820s, of course. I, you know, I think that wasn't a contradiction as much because as, as he goes into some of his speech, especially the Cooper Union speech, he, he goes there. The reason why there are, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, and these Tennessee, these states came in as slave states were for specific reasons. It wasn't because it was policy to let, you know, just anyone join in as a, any state join as a slave state. In fact, the policy, he'd argue, was restriction on the expansion of slavery. And he has the Northwest Ordinance to prove that. But things have changed. So the, the, the House has become divided because of the events of the 1850s, right? And that's creating a situation where eventually slavery is going to spread everywhere. That's the real warning of the House Divided speech. Here's how he says it. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is on course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Let anyone who doubts carefully contemplate the now almost complete legal combination, piece of machinery, so to speak, compounded by the Nebraska Doctrine and the Dred Scott decision. Let him consider not only what work machinery is apted to do and how well adapted, but also let him study the history of its construction and trace if he can, or rather fail if he can, to trace the evidence of designing and concert of action among its chief bosses from the beginning. So again, so that's a couple things here. One is he sees the, the house divided can't stand, that will we'll cease to be divided. That's everyone, every schoolboy knows that. But he's actually predicting here slavery's extension everywhere. And then it's recently, it's been recently the situation has changed. I think that's, that's what I get out of rereading this, this speech. And I think by, he, he says one more interesting thing here, in, in my view, is he has some shots out to, to Senator Douglas. But more than that, he, he gets to the problem of property, right? That slavery is a social relation obviously, one person dominating the other. It's a labor system. Um, but what Dred Scott kind of confirms is what we sort of already know about it, is that it's also a property relationship. It's a property transaction, right? Slaves are property of their masters, right? And by what Dred Scott does is sort of confirms this kind of reduces slavery in all its complexity, social, 
sexual, familial, um, generational, institutional, all, all the other aspects of slavery, but it kind of reduces it to property. And once it does that, it's kind of, it's, a, it's almost possible to contain it, right? Because property, you know, the government can't really restrict property the way it can restrict these other things, right? It can manage, it, it, can, it can have laws about, you know, can slaves marry? It can have laws, can you, you, can, you can't do certain things to people, right? You can't murder them or something, but property is kind of harder to manage. He writes or says, it's a speech, he has done all in his power to reduce the whole question of slavery to one of mere right of property. And as such, how can he oppose a foreign slave trade? How can he refuse to trade in that property shall be perfectly free unless he does it as a protection to his home production? And as the home production will probably not ask for protection, he will be wholly without the ground of opposition. He's talking about Douglas here, but you know, I think he's seen the Dred Scott decision the same error. And that is taking a complex moral, social, institutional, familial, intergenerational institution and saying it's just a property transaction. And then what's the limit? You can't have any limit on property, right? You can't stop the international trade, right? He says the only thing you can do is put up a tariff on, on the slave trade. That's the most you could legally do to restrict property. And so he's, he's saying we got to see this as something beyond property if, if we're going to solve this problem. And that's, that's kind of combined with, that's the, the consequence of Dred Scott partially is making slavery simply a property uh, you know, simply about property, which of course it is and it isn't, right? It's, it is in, in kind of a legal sense, and it was confirmed by Dred Scott to be that, but anyone who looks at it for more than two seconds realizes it's much more complex than that, right? It, it involves all these other issues, uh, many of which are moral, right? So he's making a foundation here for, for his moral claims to limit slavery's expansion. Um, and then, you know, a lot of these writings from this time are going to repeat these themes. He's working out his message for his campaign. Um, so, but I, I did really enjoy another speech that's included here, uh, which he gave in July 1858. So right um, before the first Lincoln-Douglas debate. The first one was in July. Yeah, July. So this is right before it. It's a speech in Chicago. Um, Senator Douglas was not president at this speech. Often they campaigned together. Um, you know, this is before TV, so you know, the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates were, you know, both were present, of course. Um, and what this, this is a good speech, it's a good summary of his positions on, on slavery's expansion. He talks, he reviews his feelings, feelings about Kansas, Nebraska, and, and this term squatter sovereignty, which is repulsive to him. Um, you know, he, he kind of, he, he doesn't like, popular sovereignty, it's a, it's a platit, is like a, a, a bit of, too much of a euphemism. I think it makes it sound better than it really is. So, you know, he says, well, these people don't even have rights to the land. That land is owned by the federal government in many cases, right? Often it hasn't been opened up even to, to sale yet. Um, you know, that's kind of how it went, right? The federal government owned the land and the territories, managed its sale, sold it, at, you know, certain units you know, at a certain time. People who kind of moved there before they bought the land were, were squatters, right? And you know there was that was a political debate of the early 19th century: is do do these squatters have first dibs on buying this land when it was for sale and all that? But but Lincoln uses the term squatter because it does have that more negative connotation of people being on land illegally. But he said, you know, they don't even have a legal right to really live on that land. And here they're going to make decisions for 
all time of how you know you know about slavery for all time you know they don't even have they haven't even formed a state constitution and they're already deciding issues of slavery basically by bringing in the slaves so he's got a very long argument against the whole concept of squatter sovereignty and this is going to come up so much in the lincoln douglas debates we can just kind of punt it a little bit um he talks about the future of slavery in the union which is again kind of rehashing the house divided um thesis um, this is on page 447 which is yeah essentially a, a summation of the house divided speech um, but one really nice thing about this speech that he gives towards the end is is kind of his his vision of the future of and kind of the potential for his you know for social equality between blacks and whites and what that will mean and he's, he seems very bothered by the fact even though he'll say in the lincoln douglas debates things like you know i don't really believe in the intellectual equality between blacks and whites it seems he didn't believe that um, but he says there's on the moral principles we have to be united right on the moral equality that exists and that that can't be denied he said my friends, I have detained you for as long as I desire to, and I have only to say, let us discard all this quibbling about this man and the other man, this race or that race, and the, the other race being inferior, and therefore they must be placed in an inferior position, discarding our standard that we have left us. Let us discard all these things in United as one people throughout the land until we shall once more stand up declaring that all men are created equal. So um, that's how the speech sort of closes. Um, so that's all I'm going to talk about. Um, next up, Lincoln Douglas debate. So review um, the first and second one if, if you're reading along with me. Um, what am I going to do? Well, um, how am I going to do this? Well, I'm going to do, I'm going to go over the Douglas responses. This particular anthology includes Douglas's speeches. I, I think it's a good thing, even though it's Lincoln's writings, including the back and forth is kind of critical here because they they were responses and answers, right? The way they were structured is. Um, Douglas, in the first one, Douglas went for an hour, Lincoln went for an hour and a half, and then Douglas could respond for a, a half hour. And they did this seven times. Now, three of the times, Lincoln gave the hour and a half speech in, the, in between the two. And he actually thought this put them at a kind of a disadvantage. And, one, and when he negotiated this with Douglas, he kind of admits that this puts me at a disadvantage, but I agree to it. So, because it kind of gets the, the final word, right? You, you have equal time, but one speaker kind of gets on the stage twice. Um, this particular anthology has also all the, the shout outs from the crowd, notes. They seem to have been transcriptions by journalists at the time. I think this is actually what was published um, before the presidential run. One of the things that helped lift Lincoln to the national spotlight. And so they have, you get the feeling of, you know, when there's interrupting. And there's, there's a few times actually Lincoln's interrupting Douglas, especially in that first debate. So we can look at that, but I'm just going to focus on that. There's a few other documents scattered in there, but I'm going to focus on the, the debates themselves and, and what were the issues in each debate, you know, and what and how did the arguments kind of develop and, and evolve. And there's a, there's a lot of great give and take, and it's, it's you know, I'm kind of nostalgic for this. I, I think having debates like this would be better than the, the nonsense presidential debates we have now where each person talks for a minute, right, back and forth, a minute at a time. These are actually well-formed and extended arguments, which were really fun to read. I actually think Lincoln's speech, uh, speeching ability shows a lot of improvement from the earlier speeches and so that we looked at in some of the earlier episodes. At this point, he's really in the zone. 
And, and I, I think his, his speeches are actually quite interesting to read. But anyways, enough on what's coming forward. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the Lincoln-Douglas debates next. In the meantime, is there anything about the host divided speech or the other documents we looked at that he wrote in 55, 56, 57? You know that you have comments on, or you think I misinterpreted, or you think I, I, I didn't give proper um, context to, or whatever. If you have any complaints or criticisms or praise for me, please send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com, um, or you can just leave a comment below. Um, so, as always, thanks for listening. I'm going to wrap this up. I'll see you next time. Now the